Hello, and welcome to Live from Bar Save, the show where we examine the source material for FASA Games' excellent tabletop RPG, Earthdawn. I'm Chad. Rachel can't join us today. Our uh, kids are sick, and she's got it also. And in a uh, very selfish act of self-preservation, I have locked myself in my office to try to avoid the bacteria that is floating through the air out there. Uh, I don't mean for that to be selfish, but with my asthma and everything, if I get a chest cold, it's just pretty bad news. It takes a while to get over it. Um, so I slept on a Pokemon sleeping bag on the floor, which was uh, something I haven't done in a long time. Uh, last time, I believe it was a Star Wars sleeping bag or possibly Pac-Man. I don't remember, but it was a while ago. Um, so that's what I've been doing. So I figured rather than putting the podcast on hold for another week that I would just go ahead and do uh, do an episode myself. We've got a lot of material here with Parlength. We're still going through it. We are probably only, maybe not even at the halfway point on this series, so I just didn't want to slow it down another week. Um, we're changing the plans around a little bit. We were going to talk about the laneways today, and the laneways are these giant uh, highways that are the primary way that you get around the ruins of Parlength. I've decided to push that off and switch it with what was going to be the next episode. We'll do that one today. That's about the southern area of the ruins. The above-ground portion of that is called the Twists, and the below-ground portion is the southern catacombs. Uh, the reason we're not talking about the laneways, it was a little bit of an odd fit because the city's divided in fourths, and each one of those has an above-ground and below-ground, so it worked out great. We'll just talk about a quarter of the ruins every episode. Uh, the laneways, though, didn't kind of fit into that. There's enough to say about it that it was too much to tack on to another episode, but it's short enough that it's not a whole episode by itself. So what we're going to do on the next episode when Rachel's back, we're going to talk about the laneways, and then we're going to take the second half of, half of the episode, and it won't be particularly uh, specifically in any way about par length, but we're going to kind of play around with some ideas for the podcast. We've been thinking for a while about adding some segments, and some people have mentioned online that, that they would like to see it go that direction. So we've got a few ideas for a few different segments. We're going to just try a handful of them and see if we can get some feedback on what people like and don't. And some of those may or may not be making a reappearance in the podcast as we go forward. I figured since we had about a half an episode of you know, awkward time that didn't fit in the flow of Parlength, that that'd be a good, good time to try some new things. I'm adding a quick last-minute edit here before I post the episode. This episode ended up having some spoilers in it, and I was thinking about it. I was just about to post it, and I realized I should really give you a heads up. There are some minor things throughout the episode. Uh, for example, I a couple times thought of just ideas for the GM or throughout, you know, you could try this or you could mix that into your campaign. Most of those aren't a real big deal, but just be warned if your GM listens to the podcast and is planning to run a game in the Twists or the Southern Catacombs in the near future, you may possibly want to skip the episode if you think they're going to draw a lot of ideas out of the podcast. Um, other than that, though, there is one pretty large spoiler, but it's toward the end of the episode. So I'll give you another warning before that happens. Um, and just in case anyone's wondering, yes, I did end up catching the cold. So uh, I feel like garbage right now, but that's okay because uh, Parlength moves on without me. 
Uh, and now, without further ado, on to what you really came for, the legal disclaimer. EarthDawn is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a challenge to those trademarks or copyrights. This is a fan work, and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. That was pretty good for a fourth take. I got it right, finally. So, on to Parlanth. The area that we're talking about this week is called the Twiss, and it's located in the southern quadrant of Parlanth. Parlanth, uh, the ruins, if you look at the map, it's divided into fourths by these uh, large roads called the laneways, which we'll be talking about next time. The southern portion is what we're looking at today, and each of these, as I mentioned in the intro, has an above-ground and a below-ground section. So when we talk about the twists, that's not referring to the entire portion above and below, that's just the above-ground. The area below-ground is very different, and we'll be talking about that uh, toward the end of the episode. That's called the Southern Catacombs. Now, the Twists weren't always called the Twist. That was a nickname that was picked up years later after the Scourge when adventurers were picking through the ruins. They ended up naming it the Twist. But back before the Scourge, the Therans originally called this the Commercial Quarter. Now, if you'll recall from our very first Parlanth episode, we had talked about Parlanth and how it had this grand design. There was an architect. They came up with a very specific vision and very specific strict rules for what types of structures could be in different areas of the city. So in the commercial quarter that we're talking about today, you originally would have had all kinds of shops. You would have had inns, uh, taverns, craftsmen, you know, craftsmen would set up their, their stores. You would have open air bazaars and any other kind of service related business. All of that would have been happening here in what became the twists. Now, as we mentioned in that first episode, also, you know, that uh, very few people followed these, these rules to a T. We had talked about the administrative quarter where that originally was basically the uh, the where the place of the government would operate. But the more elite, richer Therans didn't want to live next to the middle class and the poor. So they started building these elaborate mansions in the the administrative quarter, which was a complete violation of the the original concept of the design you see a similar thing going on here in the commercial quarter or the twists shopkeepers started building their homes near their businesses now these are not nearly as impressive as what the government officials did but they're still you know were pretty nice homes at the time this basically would have been the working class or the 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 middle class early on when the shopkeepers started adding homes to their businesses the, the common approach was to put the home in the back, maybe facing a less prominent street or even an alley, and then leave the business up front, which made a lot of sense. You know, you want the people coming in from the more uh, heavily trafficked street coming walking right into the business instead of walking into the home. As time went on, the, the style sort of changed and you would see you would see the business on the ground floor and then the home would be the entire upper story. The twist got its name from the physical layout of the streets, which are very windy and twisting. 
the original concept behind this was when it was the commercial quarter and you're walking through there, the Therans wanted it to feel more organic. And they wanted you to, it, it had a, a naturally calming and relaxing feel rather than having these sharp angular lines. It was these pathways that kind of wound gently around and it, it sort of put you in the mood to just stroll around, take your time. And they found that this caused people to spend more money. And the original overall feeling was one of relaxation. But like everything else, they got twisted uh, no pun intended, that got corrupted during the scourge, it's very different than it used to be. So now these winding, twisting pathways feel really unsettling and unnatural. So this is one of those areas that the GMs really want to play up the psychological fear. When you walk into the twist, you should just get this sense of that something's not right. It should be very eerie and very, very uncomfortable. The book mentions that uh, you have this feeling that eyes are always on you, that someone's always watching you. So that's something that you'll want to really make a point of bringing out in the game. Now, it's not just the shape of the streets that's different, but the architecture itself carries through with this idea of naturally flowing organic shapes. So even the buildings themselves tend to not have a lot of square edges on them. It's more rounded, flowing shapes. And they, they are limestone, very smooth stones. Obviously, over the years, there'll be some wear and tear. So you're going to see some amount of, uh, of decay in this area. But it's one of the more physically intact areas of the ruins. So the twists, more than any other area, you can look at it and get a sense of physically what the space would have looked like before the scourge. But it's been magically corrupted in some additional ways that we'll talk about. In addition to just the overall feeling of being in the twist, this unique architecture adds some pros and cons for adventurers making their way through the ruins. If you're not familiar with this area and a character has not been there before, it's pretty easy to get lost because it's, it's not like a grid where you can go, okay, we just make a left here and make a right there, and you know where you'll come out. It's very easy to get dis disoriented with all the winding, twisting pathways. But the upside is because the architecture had a lot of unique landmarks that someone who knows the area or takes the time to map it out, there are a lot of a lot of landmarks to use as reference. So if you have someone in your party that's got some experience in the in the the twists, or if your characters have taken the time, if the player characters took the time to seek out a map or to find an experienced adventure and get detailed directions, if the GM sees the players taking those kind of steps, they should definitely be rewarded for that because that kind of preparation is really going to pay off in this area. If not, it's completely appropriate to throw some challenges at them uh, related to them getting lost. Now, you don't want to overdo it because nobody wants to spend the entire game session just being lost and not finding where they're doing. But it's one of those little improvisational challenges that you can throw at players, and it's very consistent with the source material. Now, most places that you go in the ruins of modern-day Parlanth, there is just massive destruction. Sometimes you'll see 
just the shell of a building, maybe a wall standing. Sometimes it's just a pile of rubble. You will on occasion see entire buildings that are intact, but that is by far the exception, not the rule. Most of that destruction was actually done during a horror-induced civil war during the scourge. Before people realized that the horrors were already in the city when it was removed from the world magically, before they realized that, they had started fighting among themselves, and these civil wars raged on and on and destroyed entire sections of the city. But over time, people started realizing that this wasn't just a typical war. This The people had really gone crazy, and they realized that they must be under the influence of the horrors. Now, you would think that seeing buildings that were more intact would have kind of a calming effect and that this must be a safer part of the city. But that's definitely not true because what happened was the horrors, they realized they couldn't just kill everybody off. They kind of had fun uh, tormenting people with this war and watching them inflict pain and suffering on each other. That's the way that horrors feed themselves. They live off of that pain and suffering, but they couldn't just kill everybody off because then they would not have anything to sustain them. So when the number of living residents of Parlength started dwindling, the horrors instead took all the remaining survivors and they held them captive in the twists. And they chose the twists because it was the one area of the city that was fairly still fairly well intact. The primary way that the horrors kept everyone imprisoned in the twists was through the use of magical wards and traps, and many of those are still active to this day, so that's something to be aware of if you're a player adventuring in this area, or if you're a GM that wants to give a hard time to players adventuring in this area. Now, as the horrors tortured the survivors, they tried to keep them alive as long as they could so that they could maximize the amount of pain that they could uh, could inflict on them, but eventually all of them died. The book refers to the details of this as slow, methodical torture that must be left unspoken. So we are not going to speak about it because the book says not to. But I think that means it's probably pretty bad. So bad things happened, and as you know, in Earthdawn, any area that had significant atrocities or really terrible things happened in its history that all of those things can affect the pattern of that area and can, can corrupt astral space. And that's what happened with the twist because this is the most concentrated area where in par length where suffering happened during the scourge. All of that suffering corrupted the astral space in the area and caused a lot of unusual magical effects that are still around to this day. The most noticeable one is you'll see some very odd weather conditions. It's constantly overcast. Just about any day, it's going to be overcast, even if it's bright and sunny in the rest of par length. The twists just have this gloom that hangs over the area almost all the time. Even on the rare occasions when it's not overcast, if you're in the twist, you can hear distant thunder, even if there are no clouds in sight and no particular place that the thunder seems to be coming from. It also, because it's overcast, it rains a lot more in, in par length. So if it's sprinkling anywhere else, uh, I'm sorry, I meant to say in the twists. If it's sprinkling anywhere else in par length, you're going to have just sheets of rain coming down in the twists. 
So that's another thing that the GM can use both to set the mood and also the rule book has modifiers in there. You know, if you want to shoot an arrow or something in a heavy downpour, that's going to have an effect on your, on the, you know, situation modifiers and things like that. But oddly, there's very little vegetation in the twists. You would think that with all this rain that it would be overgrown. We see that in some other areas of the ruins. And uh, just to the west of Parlength is a jungle. So naturally, you would expect that with a lot of rain in a jungle-type area, you would think that it would be overgrown. But it really only has sparse vegetation at all. You'll have a little bit of fungus, mushrooms, mold, moss growing in the sides of buildings, things like that, but not much in the way of actual plants. Now, since Rachel's not here, I feel obligated to take a very short break to insert the Ghostbusters quote that she would say if she was here. You can go to the twist if you like to collect spores, molds, and fungus. So if you have an Egon in your group, the twist is going to be their place. Now, even though these altered weather patterns are the most outwardly visible signs of this astral corruption, the twists have been affected in far deeper ways. For example, if anyone attempts to live there, they eventually become insane. This astral corruption all around them will just affect their mind over time, and it will drive them insane. Even the cadaver men that live there tend to be less intelligent than cadaver men that you run into in other parts of the ruins. They, they're almost more, uh, more animal-like. They don't show as much of a personality, and they have very little in the way of self-control, and cadaver men are not known for their self-control to begin with. Now, you know, it's probably pretty unlikely that the player characters are going to want to actually build a house and live in the twists, but that doesn't mean that you can't have this affect them also. It should not be in permanent ways, but throw in something that puts them on edge. For example, maybe the entire group comes down with a severe headache at the same time, or maybe the GM just throws in a hint that for some reason everyone in the group's getting on everyone else's nerves today. Depending on the type of players that you have, some people will really take the slightest suggestion like that and run with it, and it can add to some really fun, rich role-playing experiences. And it doesn't hurt also to throw in some uh, unnerving encounters that maybe don't have anything to do with the underlying plot, of the game and aren't that critical, but just little things that are startling or unsettling in some way to really set that mood. The book describes the twist as a sanctuary for the undead. That's a direct quote. So your encounters in this area should involve a lot of horror constructs. It should be, it should be fairly common that you're going to just run into all kinds of different horror constructs in this area. Sometimes the players may even run into horrors directly, but you obviously need to be very careful with that as a GM. If you have players directly dealing with the horrors themselves, it's very, very easy to overwhelm even a fairly strong party. So be a little careful not to just throw insane amounts of horrors at people and overwhelm them, but just realize that the horrors are even more of a danger in this area than they would be in most places. Now, rumor has it, and this is something that your characters will definitely hear around being talked about around Haven, 
Rumor has it that anyone who dies in the twist will come back as an undead being of some type. So it's possible that a character who dies could come back as a cadaver man. Now, like all ruin, uh, all rumors in Earthdawn and in real life, there can be varying degrees of truth to them. The book gives the GM a few options. Uh, you'll see this a lot in the Parlane campaign set. It gives a few options so the GM can really tailor par length to be the version of par length that they want to run so it, it may be completely true it may be partially true it may be uh maybe not true at all it's up to the gm but you can look at the book uh, for some ideas there now the the effect of this corruption that's probably going to be nearest and dearest to the players hearts and is uh really going to hurt them the most is the financial toll that they take it's very bad news for would-be treasure seekers uh, any items recovered from the, the twist have a very high probability of being cursed. The book gives some specific examples of how this curse can affect items. Obviously, the GM can come up with their own. But some of the examples given are that gems can lose their shine and people that wear those gems can become depressed or suffer from nightmares. Uh, paintings will also change over time. So name givers in the paintings may have originally looked happy but their eyes will change over time. The painting will change to make them look sad. Food that's placed on dishes that come out of the twist will also take on the smell of rotting flesh. So obviously this not only can cause a problem if someone is using these cursed goods, but it severely impacts the value of them. Now, not every item out of the twist is cursed, uh, but it, it's so difficult and so time-consuming to separate out the good from the bad that this really impacts the amount of money that a character can make off of a haul of goods that comes out of the, you know, if you got a major haul that comes out of the twist, it's going to be hard to just go sell that. Many dealers will not even purchase or even talk to you about purchasing anything that comes out of the twist, so that leads adventurers to often lie about the source of these items. Now, in game terms, these curses are usually either a major or a minor curse. It could be a horror curse, but those aren't as common. But again, if it fits your campaign, feel free to throw that in there. For more details on the rules of how curses work, you're going to want to see page 184 of the 4th edition Game Master's Guide. Now, if you're a GM, you know that one of the simple pleasures in life is being mean to your friends in a socially acceptable way, and that's why we play Earthdawn, right? So, as a GM, I love cursed items because you get to do all kinds of fun, terrible things. Uh, for example, and these are just a few ideas that I had, but you can you can come up with a lot of ways of working cursed items into your campaigns. For example, maybe the characters accidentally bring a cursed item back into Haven. That item gets into circulation, and it causes all kinds of problems. So it passes from person to person, and different people end up getting cursed, and that gets tracked back to the player characters who now have damaged their reputation and they're in trouble with Torgak for uh, creating mayhem in the town. I ended up doing that as an introductory thing in our very first session of Earthdawn that we played. Not the first one ever, but the first one since we got back into it a couple years ago. And that was just a really fun way to kick off a campaign. Um, another thing you can do, you can have them... 
uh, find some items. Maybe they find some useful things there. It could be magical or mundane items, but something that they're going to want to carry with them. Wait a session or two so that they don't necessarily tie it back, but just gradually have them start having some bad luck and just all kinds of misfortunes happen. And they have to realize the connection between these items and and the curse that they picked up. So, you know, you can make a lot of curse rolls behind the GM screen so they know something's going on, but they haven't quite put it together. So that can be a lot of fun. Another thing you could do if your characters are really into... Uh, role-playing in Haven, and they want to be more involved in that type of, uh, of situation in your campaign, maybe you could have a dealer, a caravan owner, or somebody like that who's just trying to break into the business and he makes a rookie mistake. Um, he accidentally buys a big haul of items from the twist. And the dealer didn't keep very good records, so now he doesn't know who sold him these items and where they came from. That dealer could hire the player characters to track down, maybe go interview people and try to figure out where these items came from and try to get the person that sold them to make some kind of restitution, something like that. These are just a couple ideas I came up with, but the uh, the tainted items in the twists are a lot of fun to play with. So that's something to keep in mind if you're looking for a good hook to get your game going in power length. Everything we've talked about so far has been about the twists, which is the above ground section. But if you go to the same portion of the ruins, below that underground are the southern catacombs. Now, the southern catacombs are really made up of multiple layers. The top layer, the layer closest to the surface, is the original design of the city. So this is what was originally built when Parlanth was constructed. There's a very noticeable difference between that and the lower levels, which were added on, again, in violation of Parlanth's design. So the upper levels, the ceilings are about 20 feet high, and they're, they're not heavily ornamented like you'll see in certain other areas that we'll be talking about of other parts of the catacombs. So not heavily ornamented, but it definitely looks finished. There's smooth stone surfaces as opposed to just rough-hewn rocks. And everything is very symmetric and orderly by design. So it can be easy to confuse one area with another because all of these areas look pretty similar. But somebody with experience, adventurers with experience in this area, uh, can easily navigate if they've been there before. They should be able to find their way um, back to the same area again. Now, below that... Below the original part are a series of tunnels. This is still considered part of the southern catacombs, but they were added on just as needed as the city grew. And you'll see this in every area of the ruins. The original design, uh, they deviated from it. Sometimes it was just out of necessity, and other times they actually did it to spite the architect who just annoyed everybody and made a lot of enemies. So sometimes city officials changed the plan on purpose just to get under the guy's skin. But you'll notice a difference here. The walls are going to be very unfinished. You're not going to have nearly the height. So these are much smaller tunnels. They tend to be uh, winding around more, not nearly the grid-like orderly uh, design that you'll see in the upper part of the southern catacombs. These also tend to be built in a more hasty fashion. 
so they're going to be less stable. So you're going to find entire areas of the catacombs that have caved in. You'll have other places where it's still, the tunnel is still accessible, but the, the roof is weak and maybe support the supports are starting to crumble. So that can be risky also. Now, just as the twists had a different name before the scourge, the Southern Catacombs did as well. They weren't originally called that. The original name was the Storage Center. And the concept for this part of the city was that the Therans would build these individual storage rooms and that they could rent them out to anybody who could pay. Primarily, they were rented by the merchants whose shops were directly above in the commercial quarter. It kind of made the most sense because the merchants were the ones who were most in need of storage space. And since the shops are right above, it was really convenient, which was the idea behind putting the storage below the commercial quarter. Now, to really understand the southern catacombs, we have to take a step back and talk about the northern catacombs for a minute because the two are pretty deeply intertwined. We'll be covering the northern catacombs in more detail in an upcoming episode. Uh, But basically, the northern catacombs originally housed the imperial treasury. So this was where the Theron Empire in Parlanth would keep most of its material wealth. And that could be anywhere from gold and gems, artifacts, uh, powerful magical items, anything, any material objects that they had of value would be stored in this imperial treasury in what later became the northern catacombs. Now, what happened was as the city grew, they did still have the need to store all this material wealth, but more and more it became obvious that the slave trade was where Thera really made its money in Parlanth. Parlanth became a major, major hub of the slave trade. Now, if you remember from our uh, Earth on Crash Course series that we did, slave uh, slavery in Barsave is a major sticking point. Barsavian society as a whole has always rejected it. The Therans have built their empire on slaves. So this has always been a major clash between the two. And if you remember also, we said that the purpose of Parlanth, in addition to being a physical presence for the Theron Empire, it was also meant as a piece of propaganda. People were supposed to be overwhelmed with with the sights and the sounds of Parlanth and think how great Thera is uh, in order to win their allegiance. But because of that, you can't put all the slave pens above ground because that is such a sticking point for Barsave. So the original design called for those to be underground also, and that was in the same quadrant as the Imperial Treasury. Now, what happened was as the slave trade grew, they needed more and more area to house all these slaves. And the Therans started getting concerned. I mean, not only was the northern catacombs becoming pretty crowded, But on top of that, they were concerned about the security risk. If there was some kind of major slave uprising or something, you don't want them being right next to where the treasury is. So they got concerned about this. So at some point, they relocated the treasury from the northern catacombs to the southern catacombs. What's ironic, though, is that the security problem that the Therans had been concerned with actually ended up happening after they relocated the treasury to the southern catacombs. There were some name givers who, uh, the, it, the book says that their names and the details of this has been lost to history, but there were some name givers who were renting rooms off of the Therans, these storage units in the southern catacombs, 
use that as kind of a base of operations to be able to try to make an attempt to rob the treasury. So after that point, Thera just stopped offering to rent out the rooms to private individuals. So they were the storerooms were for government use only. No more could any of the any of the merchants or anyone else just go rent one of these rooms because it was too big of a risk. So as a result, many of the rooms in the southern catacombs now have been empty since even before the scourge. Okay, it's time for that spoiler warning that I told you was coming. The rest of the episode is dangerous territory for you if you're a player whose GM may be running a game in par length. Uh, If not, or if you want to take the risk of ruining it, feel free to listen to the rest of it. But I would encourage you, if you're going to drop out early, take the extra 10 minutes or so that you're saving. Spend some of that time going on to Facebook or Twitter and tell the world why Earth Dawn is great. Uh, So see you later. I'm going to just sit here and ramble for a little while uh, so that you have a second to turn it off. I'll say random earth on words, uh, purifier, parlanth, vergigorm, roll for perception. Okay, if you're still here, it's your own fault. Now, what's really cool about this, though, I remember when we were talking to Lou Prosperi, the, the first edition line developer, he uh, he mentioned, not specifically about Parlength, but he mentioned that they made a point in Earthdawn of leaving a lot of empty space, a lot of open areas so that the GM could really tailor it and wouldn't be boxed in by exactly the vision that FASA had. They wanted to give you enough, um, kind of enough room to be able to make it your own. And all of that explanation basically leads up to an area in the southern catacombs that's fairly empty. It's more or less like a blank canvas for the GM to be able to put whatever they want on it. For example, you might look at some things that have already happened in your campaign before you go to Parlength. Maybe there's a particular faction that you're, uh, that your characters have had a run in with. So maybe they had some they ran into some people from the blood uh, the bloodwood some of the blood warders or maybe they have had some interactions with thrall or with with the therans or really any kind of faction or it could even be a cult it could be anything you want you can use this as sort of like a secret layer um, you could also use it as really anything else you want. The book's got some particular suggestions. So just like in a lot of other areas in this product, if you look in there, the GM has multiple choice options, but feel free to kind of throw in your own also. There are a couple things to keep in mind, though, when you're designing adventures in the Southern Catacombs. A couple things that you'll want to want to remember to include in order to keep the cohesion with the rest of the source material. One of those considerations is to think about what kind of traps would be in this area. Now, since it originally housed the Theron treasury, there would obviously, in, in the area immediately around the treasury, it would be heavily trapped. Physical traps and magical traps. Now, there also may have been, well, definitely would have at the time, been some traps on the individual storerooms. Uh, Some of those traps may possibly still be armed. Um, Now, like we mentioned before, the storerooms have been mostly cleared out, but the Theron government was using some of these also. So I wouldn't say that all the storerooms are cleared out. Uh, And then also, if there's any other faction, let's say, for example, that you've decided as the GM 
that the um, the Theron agents in Parlanth are using the Southern Catacombs as kind of like a secret base so, to communicate with each other. They probably would have added some traps for their own security. So just sort of think about in your version of Parlanth what's going on here and what would make sense. The people involved in whatever's happening there, what kind of security would they have added? Another thing that you really want to think heavily about is what role, if any, should this this um, this rumor of the Theron treasury, what should that play, what kind of role should that play in your campaign? So this is one of those things that would definitely be a hot topic of conversation around Haven. So it's really easy to get it out there if they're in the, you know, they're at the, uh, the Restless Troll having some drinks or whatever. They're going to, on a very regular basis, hear people talking about the treasury and trying to figure out where it is and launching a mission to go. You know, they're going to make all this money going there. So you need to sort of think about what is the truth of that. It definitely, it's pretty well established that that the treasury was relocated to the southern catacombs. But there are differing reports of what the situation is today. Some people say that the wealth was all emptied out during the Civil War. Uh, maybe other people say that some early adventurers got to it and it's not there anymore. Or maybe it's completely intact but covered with all kinds of traps and magical protections. So the details of that really are going to depend on what kind of game that your group wants to play. That's what's so great about Parlanth. More than any other area of Earthdawn, I think Parlanth lends itself to a very wide array of campaigns. So you might have a group that really enjoys traditional dungeon crawling type stuff. If that's the case mapping out in detail exactly what the treasury looks like and what traps are where and which rooms have what treasure, that might be a type of game that your group really likes. If not, then you may want to steer clear of that kind of approach. Now, obviously, the GM can always talk to the players outside of the game and say, hey, what kind of campaign would you like to run? Would you be interested in this type of plotline or that? You can do that, but what might even be better is just start floating this rumor in their interactions in Haven. They're going to hear this a lot and see what their reaction is. If they sort of blow it off and don't seem to care, then maybe it's not even going to be part of your game at all. But if they really get into it, then they can start taking taking steps in between sessions to kind of prepare and plan their own mission. So, for example, they could go to Vardigul's, who we talked about before, and purchase whatever lore she has available to learn as much as they can about the catacombs. They could seek out some GM characters who might have been, you know, been on an expedition to try to find it and get information. So if you take this kind of approach, then what you're really doing is you're allowing the players in the game to tell you what what kind of adventures they want. So you let them go through the the motions of role playing their prep. And now you take that information and you use that to prep the next session. That can be a really rewarding way to play because it's not just the players kind of showing up to do whatever thing you decided they would be doing. They really have an active part in planning an expedition. And then the GM works out the details of what that's going to look like. Well, that's basically all the information I wanted to cover today about the southern part of the ruins. And as you can tell, it's just it's a really cool part 
of par length. There's just a lot that you can do with the twists and also having some flexibility with the Southern Catacombs to really make it your own and do whatever you want to do in your campaign. Um, if you don't have this product, it's the first edition campaign set. It's called Parlength, The Forgotten City. If you don't have this, I would definitely encourage you, go to fasagames.com. At the time of this recording, it's on sale for 40% off the normal price. It's only $15 for a PDF. The, the, print, uh, the print edition has been out of print for quite some time, but the PDF's got the scans of the... It, it's got the book. It's got the scans of the map wall. It's got all the handouts. All of that in there. And this is, you could really play for years and years just in Parlength. Um, also, if you're new to Earthnon, I think Parlength is an excellent place to start. I started in Skypoint, which was probably one of the more challenging places to run a campaign. And I later got Parlength, and I really had wished that I had flipped the order around. So, whether you've been playing for a while and have an existing campaign, or looking to get a new one started, I can't recommend this this product highly enough. So definitely check that out. That's facetgames.com. You can get everything from there. You can get the current books, any of the fourth edition stuff. You can get either the print book or the PDFs or a bundle, and all the older material is there as well. Um, I also just wanted to say thanks again to Josh and Morgan and everybody at FASA that just keeps this wonderful game going. Um, you know, I kind of got out of it for years. Just it's hard to keep one of these games going as an adult sometimes. And it was on my shelf for a while. And I came back to it. I, I was planning on just running my first edition, you know, running a game with all my first edition stuff. I I didn't even realize that there was a fourth edition. The game was still going. And I was I was really happy to see that there's such a dedicated group that just keeps this game alive. I'd also encourage any of our listeners, um, get on Twitter or Reddit or whatever is your social media platform of choice, and just let other people know about Earthdawn. I think just getting the community involved in uh, you know, telling everyone what makes this game so great, it's just going to be good for the, for the game all around. And the more people we can get playing, the more resources Fast is going to have to be able to keep, you know, keep it going and keep new, new products coming out. It's just, it's always been really surprising to me how many hardcore D&D players who are into fantasy tabletop role-playing have never even heard of Earthdawn or have heard of it but don't know anything about it, don't know what makes it special. And I know a guy in my college group, uh, Earthdawn was fairly new at the time. This would have been, well, it had been out a few years. This would have been 97. So it would have been out for a couple of, for a few years, but he was a hardcore D and D player, and he played a he played a year or so with us in Earthdawn, and he said he said I, this is better than any D and D campaign I've ever ever played. That might be because I'm an amazing GM in every possible way. Actually, probably not because I was fumbling through the books a lot and making up rules because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> But in any case, there are a lot of people that are into tabletop RPGs as a hobby that really, really would benefit from knowing more about Earthdawn. So don't be shy about getting out there and uh, telling everybody what makes this game so great. If you have any comments or feedback for us, you can uh, reach me on Twitter. I'm at Chad Lair, C-H-A-D-L-A-R-E. Or Rachel is at lavamonkeygames.com. I'm sorry, that is the website, lavamonkeygames.com. Uh, but on Twitter is also at lavamonkeygames. I'm also on Reddit at Chad Lair. I'm more, 
I'm more active on Twitter, but I'm on Reddit as well. And uh, we also have a discussion board on our website, lavamonkeygames.com slash live from bar save. Each individual episode link will take you to the, uh, the to that episode. And then below that, there's a comment board. So feel free to leave us some suggestions there. As I uh, mentioned at the top of the episode, we're thinking about reshaping the format somewhat. We're going to keep kind of the heart and soul of it the way it is now, but we're looking for ways that we can refine it now that we've been doing this for a little while. So let us know what you think, and if you have any ideas of what you'd like to cover, uh, just uh, go on there and let us know. Well, thanks for listening, and next time my lovely co-host should be joining us again. But uh, in the meantime, enjoy Earth Dawn, and we will see you next time.